You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Good morning. Good morning, Dean. Good morning, Dean. Good morning, Judith. Good morning, morning, Alice. Welcome back. Good to be back. Yeah. Yeah. We announced last week you'll be back. And And here I am. And you are. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Just quickly, Melbourne weather today, a high chance of showers, 95%, high chance elsewhere, becoming less likely during the afternoon. Snow possible above 400 metres this morning. Oh, so my God, but not in my backyard, I don't think. No, no, you can drive no, up to uh, Mount, Mount Macedon and you'll be fine. But okay. big chance of a thunderstorm in the southeastern suburbs this morning and small hail is possible. A top of 12 after, well, when I was coming in this morning, it was 6 degrees in the car, and tomorrow, a top of 15 and a low of 9 with 60% chance of showers. So, two more weeks, people. Two more weeks. Just hold on until the 1st of September, and you'll be (laughs) fine. We had that little hint, didn't we, on Saturday? Saturday was a beautiful day. Yeah. Oh, even yesterday, actually, come. yesterday. Yeah. yeah, I flew a kite yesterday, which was yeah, yeah, pretty I didn't exciting. Know you were a kite flyer? Oh, they're only five dollars, and I've got kids. <laughs> so, okay, I used to be able to make a kite, but yesterday it was so windy, and I said, "Oh, we'll go up to the park," and you know, oh, it was good to see the kids fun. running around, yeah. yeah, chasing a kite which got stuck in a tree. But they anyway. always, that's always how it ends. You always lose the kite. And <laughs> yeah, then you yeah. Go home. That hence, that's why I started with the only five dollars. Yeah, not. Not too much pain. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like going to McDonald's, mm. but you get more fun out of a kite than you do out of spending money at McDonald's. Oh, yeah. sure um, uh, we've got a pretty jam-packed show today, don't we? Um, we always have, it's for sure. Yeah. So uh, at eight, we're going to be speaking to Noah Reisman, who's going to talk to us a bit about the uh, new law governing um, and changing situation of transgender people so they can choose um, the gender on their birth certificate. And that went through Parliament last, lower house last week in Victoria and so he's going to tell us you know why that's an important law what difference it will make in people's lives so really excited to hear to hear from him yeah it's definitely a good good news it's a win because I mean the birth certificate's one thing that you would think the government wouldn't ever want you to to mess with, you know. Well, it's you hard know. enough to get a copy when you can't <laughs> find one, let alone... Oh, well, well yeah. and Victoria won't be the first, actually. Um, so there, there's, the laws have already changed in other states. Anyway, we'll, we'll hear all about that. So that's great. And I think, uh, Alice, if you brought us back some stories yeah. from the UK. Yep. So while I was in the UK, um, I was traipsing around the streets of London with my recorder and spoke to a climate activist called Robert. So we're going to hear from Robert. We'll talk to uh, Associate Professor and Associate Dean of Computing and Security at Edith Cohen University, Paul Haskell-Dowland, 
I guess, about the costs that are, you know, these cyber attacks have on um, a range of things. Specifically, we know that, you know, there was uh, attacks to ANU, an Australian Catholic university, um, but also the chronic shortage of cybersecurity professionals in Australia. It's um, a whole new field, really, isn't mm. it? I mean, it, it must, and it changes so mm. quickly, must constantly have to be careful and watching and, and keeping up with it. Big challenge. Things like having a clear, defined career path for well, yes. for cybersecurity specialists, you know, like even offering a cybersecurity course at a university could yeah. be a potential option. Do they offer them? Where are we sitting yes, in these in this sure. space? Yeah, that's going to be really interesting. And we're also going to speak again to John Garrick, who we've spoken to before. Uh, he's an expert in China law and also what's happening in Hong Kong. So we'll speak to him about two two aspects. He has a paper that was published in the conversation last week. I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, probably Wednesday, and then republished as an opinion piece in the Sydney Morning Herald, looking at um, the lessons that are for about what's happening in Hong Kong, uh, related to Chinese law and Australia generally. Uh, what, what about Hong Kong on the weekend? Yeah, well, it's um, it just keeps growing. Organisers said there was at least 1.7 million who participated, depending on who you speak to, of course. But uh, Hong Kong streets turned into rivers of umbrellas yesterday yeah, as hundreds and hun- yeah. thousands of people turned up again for, uh, what, the 11th consecutive um, weekend, they're sort of talking? Yeah, I've, yeah. Lost, I've lost count, yeah. but... Uh, at this time, peaceful protests, mm. and it does show an incredible determination. And no right police is quite a surprise. You know, yeah, they were saying that they were being seen in the procession's main routes. But um, I think the organisers were talking about showing the world that Hong Kong people can be totally peaceful. Um, oh. They came out and also apologised for the disturbance oh, that really? happened no, at the airport. You know, yeah, yeah, um, okay. the fact that they delayed all those flights, which was oh, which, I did, I did yeah. know about that. Yeah. yeah, in fact, I had a friend who was flying back in Canada, not till the 12th of September, so she was hoping that would have settled down. <laughs> yeah. But um, almost two million yet again, and uh, it shows it's uh, there's a deep chord being struck in. You know, the legislation is proposed. We will hear more about that. But you know what? We, we haven't yet thanked Beyond Zero. Beyond Zero Emissions, the show that came on before us. So we want Always to a that. great show. Mm. Always a great show. And uh, we that should probably b- say... Bob, the climate activist, would definitely oh, be a good follow-on. You'd be listening <laughs> to that, definitely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And um, am I right? It's the 19th of August. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, like you say, Dean... Spring, we can we can just begin to feel it. <laughs> yeah, looking forward to that. And before we sort of uh, listen to uh, John Garrick, um, the Melbourne International Film Festival finishes well today. Yes, essentially, yeah, yeah. it finished yesterday. The dates yeah. are the first to the nineteenth. I don't know what they're planning on doing on a Monday, but you know. And you went. I went to about six films, maybe wow. seven, yeah. maybe seven. Yeah, it was it was first time I've been here for the film festival, so it was great. And I guess the subtext here, any highlights? Knows. Any highlights? Is <laughs> that my daughter had a film in the festival, so that was pretty exciting. Uh, the film was Morgana. Her name is Isabel Peppard, and the, her co-producer director was Josie Hess. And it was about a woman in her. It is about a woman in her um, late forties um, who was um, very depressed and thinking of committing suicide and then decided 
she wanted one last fling because she sexual and sexual experience because she'd been in a loveless marriage a long time and uh, she had a, uh, hired a sex worker and it was such a positive experience <laughs> she hired him again and then he went on and began making each other then she got an idea for a pornographic movie that was sex positive age positive and women positive and um, so they together they they made that film where he was involved or wow. encouraged and it's a documentary it's a <laughs> documentary about morgana's mm. life so of course it's um yeah i mean as a mum, <laughs> you know oh, i bet yeah. you've been uh, in the front row <laughs> <laughs> no no but close close <laughs> no, enough close um, enough was morgana there yeah of course in full bloom. Yeah. <laughs> in full bloom. Yeah. So there was. So it was about her life, and of course she participated in, in the whole filmmaking mm. process, beginning to end. And then after the film, there was a panel, and on the panel was Morgana herself. Fascinating. Uh, it was. It was wonderful, and uh, Judith Lucy and um, Fiona Patton. Oh. Yeah, a legislator here in the upper house, and um, and Isabel, my daughter, and Josie, and yeah, Morgana, as I said. So, the and Deb Verhoeven, uh, who's a kind of writes about film academic, and she moderated, and she was fabulous. So it was a, a wonderful experience for me, and the audience gave it a standing ovation. So it must have been a wonderful experience for them too. Oh, you must be so proud. I am. Yeah, yeah. Can, can you been. tell? Amazing. <laughs> can you it's, tell? Um, you know, it's not it's it's uh, it's not easy to make a film. Four uh, years, yeah, four years yeah. in making, yeah. yeah, and to to have it widely received and accepted, mm. it's fantastic. You know, mm. I know um, Shabi, who I did radio with for a while. You know, he, he went down a totally different path and went to VCA um, to become a, a director. And you know, it's hard. It's a hard slog. He still mm. has a full time job, but. It's a passion that you can never take out of people once they get into it. So, yeah, yeah congratulations to... Had Isabel made a film before as well? well? Yeah, she's done stop-motion animation in the past. So she did one called Butterflies, which won an award at the Sydney Film Festival uh, quite a few, about four years, five years ago, before she started, well, before she started Morgana. And um, and she's a sculptor as well. So some of the sculpting came into the film, the Morgana film as well. And, um, and she's already got ideas for another one, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no rest for the having, wicked. Yeah. But having that sort of um, reaction from the audience, that must just make you want to do it over and over again, like already <laughs> yeah. be leaving buzzing with ideas. Well, I think she'd already already had that buzz. Yeah, you almost have to get to get one finished. You almost have to know, I think, where you're going next. Yeah. yeah. A little yeah. bit. Um, so anyway, yeah, but of course, I mean, yeah, great. Yeah, great to get that kind mm. of um, response. Mm. And I wasn't here for the festival, but I would have loved to have actually seen um, some of the films. Are there any other highlights? Well, um, Aretha Franklin. Oh, yeah, the documentary. Am- Amazing Grace was so wonderful and was so fantastic to be in. Back in Lo- Los Angeles, it was in a um, church because, of course, so many black singers mm. at that time, and the women in particular, were involved in gospel. Mm-hmm. So this was, she was already famous. She, you know, she already had a lot of hits and decided to come back. It was almost like a homecoming to this church and do con- two nights of a concert there. 
and and it was just you know 1971 72 and you know full uh, afros yeah. and and the just the fashion and the style and the and the feeling of the whole place it just um, was wonderful and uh, mm. the second night Mick Jagger was in the concert in the, went to the concert naturally a very naturally young, Mick Jagger was no no in the he concert. didn't perform <laughs> he was just in the back seats oh cool yeah but the the film you know panned in on him the film uh, a couple of times not much I mean it was Aretha's night and mm. her voice was sensational and it was incredibly moving so so that was good I went to see being the kind of nerd I am um, capital in the 21st century how could someone make a film about uh, Thomas Piketty's um, book on capital in the 21st century it came out I think 2007 2008 and I think roughly the argument was that we're back in a feudal situation, except the barons are now the com- corporations, mm. and the mm. democratically elected governments become less relevant, and the corporations are really um, wielding the power. So that, w- and he did like this is huge analysis. Anyway, everything did, everything leads to capitalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was amazing. They did an amazing job on that one, and. Um, Oh, and then the other one, I'll just say one last, was um, God, God is a woman and her name is Petrunia. <laughs> and it was filmed, filmed in um, Macedonia. And it was this little tiny town and, you know, very much Orthodox. I don't know which Orthodox Christian, but, the, you know, the hats and the black robes. And there was this tradition where you, you throw a, the cross into the running water and all the young blokes, you know, strip Jump to the waist, to go, go and get, and get it. it. And so, so this young woman just who's having a miserable time just walks by when this is going on and she sees it and she just jumps in and she, <laughs> she gets the cross. Oh, oh hell would have wow. broken this. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. what happens forever. And she's bright. I mean, she's a history, in you know, the film, a history um, major. So she, they take her to the police station. What am I charged with? <laughs> yeah, you know we do. We we have we have that around Easter down at uh, oh, really? Frankston Beach. I think it's the uh, Cypriot community that go out. So yeah. the, the, it's just men that have been doing it, and they throw out a cross, and the well, first one to swim out and get it gets blessed. Well, mm. uh, maybe there will be a difference this year. Yeah, mm. if anyone's any of our listeners, if any of our listeners go and see God as a woman yeah. and her name is Petunia, yeah. get out there. Yeah, that's amazing. What um, you know, those types of events let you see what's outside yeah. of your own mm. world. Yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah. It, well, yeah, so it was great, and of course we all know that um, the Teskey brothers from. Warren Dot. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the boys from Warren Dot have a new album out, and we're going to play number one from their album, and it's called Let Me Let You Down. a great start to our morning <laughs> the Teskey Brothers from the new album Run Home Slow and, and I don't remember the the documentary but you talked about Aretha Franklin before oh, yes, um, yes. and the music it sounds like you know that there was a, a crew called the Wrecking Crew 
who were behind all, there were session musicians who were behind all the great hits of the 40s. I don't know what the documentary's 40s? called. Oh, sorry, 60s, 70s and 80s, <laughs> okay. you know. And they were involved in actually writing the riffs for R.E.S.P.C.T., you know, oh, and playing right. all of the, yes. all of these music. Yes. So, and the documentary goes into how they came up with all the riffs and what they were doing, you know. This and they a different documentary that you've seen, do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they never got recognised for oh, it. But, you know, things like My Girl, The Four Tops, oh. all of these songs from Motown, these guys yeah. were just musicians Instantly who got together. recognisable for the riffs. Uh, yeah, 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 well. yeah. But they didn't get the credit. This obviously. is such a common story, yeah, actually. It's yeah. not unusual at all. But yeah. they've just been put into the Hall of Fame. But they're all session music. There were probably about 20 of them. But yeah, and there's yeah. some pretty fabulous session music. Yeah. I mean, there was also a documentary called, I think it was 12 Feet from Stardom, about a lot of the backing singers. Yeah, yeah. That's what a lot, yeah, yeah, lot of the women. Related yeah. to that, well, that's the how women. the Supremes yeah. started, didn't they? They were all Probably. Yeah, I don't singers. know their yeah. story, but I wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised at all. Mm. So a lot of people got their start. Yeah, so the whole history of music is just... Yeah, so much more to know than, you know. That's what's on the and there's so I'm many great documentaries coming out about musicians as well. Yeah. Like yeah. Nina Simone, there's a great documentary oh. about her. Um, yes, Amy I'm Winehouse, obviously, that one was mm. huge. Yeah. Um, Whitney. Yeah. Just these full length feature films, yeah. but in doco style. Mm. Yeah, all worth Wait till watch. they release one on Edie Gourmet and we'll I see thought how you were we going to say on yourself. No, no. <laughs> well, okay. And one will be out with your hours. And the reason this is quite important is my eight-year-old son keeps saying to me he wants to be a rapper when he grows up. Oh, and I'm, right. So I'm like, well, that's fine, but you need to know how to play music. <laughs> and, and, so, and all he cares about is, no, nah, I just want to rap. So I'm like, well, oh, well, oh, oh he can be totally a do it. Oh, yeah. he can go for it. Well, we he can totally do that. Let's hear if any people in Hong Kong have been rapping over the weekend. Well, we're, no. going, we're, we're going to go. It's going to be a little drier than that because we're going to be talking about the basic law in mm. Hong Kong and mm. why people are up in arms. So John Garrick is a university fellow in law at Charles Darwin University. And we, we've spoken to him, I think, twice mm. before. Mm. And um, he's published extensively on the socialist rule of law in China. That's kind of his area of expertise. And also has a background in working in Hong Kong and in China. So he has you know, experience on the ground. He wrote a paper for the conversation published last week and was republished, as I said earlier, on um, in the Sydney Morning Herald as a, an opinion piece entitled Hong Kong Fears Losing Its Rule of Law and the Rest of the World Should Worry Too. So we have two parts uh, to the interview, and the first really is about the rule of law in Hong Kong, which is often called the basic law. The basic law of Hong Kong is derived from the British common law system, where laws are made by a parliament that's voted by the electorate. So parliament makes the laws, and then judges rule on the laws. With that basic law, there is a separation of powers doctrine that means that the government doesn't have a direct control over what the courts do. That is, there is an independent judiciary. This is sometimes referred to as a judicial firewall. In, in, in what sense? What does it protect in, in, against? It protects people appearing before the court from direct interference from the government. Just for example, Carrie Lam, chief executive uh, of Hong Kong, can't ring up the judge and say, we want you to find this person guilty because it's a politically sensitive matter and we want to set an example. There's a separation of powers that keeps the judiciary independent of the government. 
This is a stark contrast to the socialist rule of law that operates in, in mainland China, where the Chinese Communist Party is the ultimate power in relation to matters before the court. Anything that is perceived to have a political element, the judges will uh, be required to follow political advice and follow what the Communist Party dictates on the matter. Hong Kong so, at the moment is exempt from that. Hong Kong is exempt from that. The trigger for the protests at the moment was the idea of an extradition law which would enable China to extradite people from Hong Kong, including residents and visitors. The extradition law was perceived to be a threat, an opening up of the possibility of Hong Kongers being extradited for trial in the mainland if they're perceived to be uh, dissidents, troublemakers, rights activists. The fear was that if the extradition law was passed, such dissidents could disappear into the Chinese correctional apparatus and this would break down that basic law protection that Hong Kongers currently have, that judicial firewall, which prevents government, in brackets, Communist Party, directives about what's to happen with people. We've been watching this play out, and I think with a bit of dread around, um, you know, what happened in Tiananmen Square, having a Oh, no, no absolutely. It does have uh, more than a waft of that to it satellite images starting to emerge of armoured divisions at the border ready to move in. These might just be for show, of course, because if the People's Liberation Army did go into Hong Kong and attack Hong Kong Chinese protesters, this is actually going to not only hurt the Hong Kong people, but it'll also hurt the Chinese economy because it's guaranteed there'll be an outpouring of capital from Hong Kong. I gather that outpouring might already be happening. Yeah. I think they're going to want to preserve Hong Kong's economic value. Yes, and I guess Taiwan will be uh, also watching very closely, propose the same deal, the same arrangement that Hong Kong has been existing under. That's, that's absolutely right. The Taiwanese are monitoring this extremely closely and they'll be very nervous about this and they'll also be watching the international community's response to it. The uh, Americans are on the record as saying this is a, an internal matter for China so they're staying out of it. The other thing that must be terrifying in a way to China and to Xi Jinping's rule is the absolute desire, the passion for democracy that's coming out from Hong Kong. The young Hong Kongers have known this freedom from the beginning of their lives. I think they can also foresee what it might mean to have a creeping communist jurisdiction coming into Hong Kong. They understand perfectly what it means for them. There's another strand to that fire that isn't often talked about, particularly in the Western media, it's the language. Cantonese is the uh, dominant language spoken in Hong Kong 
and it always has been. It's a nine-tone historical uh, language, and that's being replaced by Mandarin, which is a four-tone language. There's this deep concern that Mandarin not only supplants Cantonese, but over time Cantonese is increasingly reduced. It sort of ends up a remnant. Cantonese was really southern China, wasn't it? That's right. It's deeply connected to their identities, their culture. The language issue is a sleeper. You've got the dominant tribe from the north moving south and imposing their language, something that comes out of an earlier era of China's warring tribes. I don't want to simplify it in that way, but I'm just creating the image of how strong people can feel about threats to their language. Indeed, and you know that's that is a whole interesting dimension. And one of the things that uh, John Garrick said was that um, uh, when some friends of his were on their way back to China, went through Hong Kong, some of the protesters spoke to them at the airport and said, "You're in Hong Kong. Why aren't you speaking Cantonese?" And that's kind of what gave you know kind of reminded him that this is another issue. But I yeah. I do think, you know, when they talk about, you know, China has a long history of warring tribes, if you like, as mm. you said, or different clans. And um, it's, it, I mean, I'm wondering, is that, you know, how um, influential that might be still or that deep history going back? So John Garrick, just a reminder, anyone who's just tuned in, is at Charles Darwin University. He's uh, published on Socialist Rule of China. And... Um, when I spoke to him before, he's always, you know, on two occasions in the past, he's always emphasized the importance of both the China relationship and the U.S. relationship for Australia. So he, that's always been my sense of where he sits, that he, he wants us to value both. And so now I'm, we're going to go on and hear a little bit more about that. I think there's a balancing point to be made about the anti-China rhetoric coming out of the United States, particularly around the trade wars. But inside China, there's a fairly steady diet of anti-US rhetoric in the state-controlled Chinese media as well. So these two giants are slugging it out. And we don't want to be a meat-in-the-sandwich. We're a sovereign nation with two important players, the United States, with our very deep uh, historical and cultural links, language ties, uh, everything actually, and uh, China, a huge trading partner, background of uh, friendship, many Chinese uh, immigrants uh, populating various parts of Australia, having made a very important contribution Uh, to the development of the nation. We don't want to be caught in the crossfires here. So the balancing act is tricky and we've got to do much better. And Australia has to be very careful about and sophisticated, I think. And sophisticated because some of the tactics uh, of the great powers that are at play, both the United States and China, are subtle so that we've got to be much more on our game What is relatively new in the Australian lexicon is that uh, there's a growing awareness of the subtle use of China's soft power to penetrate our political institutions so that there's a new major influence that's 
in the game. The Chinese Communist Party views the law as an instrument of the party to shape government policy domestically and in its approach to international law. A specific example of that that I gave in my recent paper was in relation to China's view on the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. In the dispute with the Philippines over the territory in the South China Sea, the Philippines said it's in our exclusive economic zone, this is illegal. China said, no, it's legal because our claim over the South China Sea is deeply historic. The United Nations Tribunal found unanimously in favour of the Philippines and China said, we don't recognise this tribunal, we don't recognise its authority and we're not going to abide by this order. Xi Jinping himself said that we're not reclaiming these islands for military purposes and then around the very next corner they were reclaimed for military purposes including building of runways, fortifications. So regarding territorial issues and maritime delimitation disputes, China does not accept any means of third-party dispute settlement or solution imposed on China through a multilateral organization. Another point you make in your paper, with the point of establishing the United Nations and other multilateral institutions, was yep. to replace might makes right with something like an international rule of law. China obviously has thumbed its nose at that, but China is not the only country that's done that. So I'm getting a sense that when China does it, it's a bad thing. When other countries in the West do it, it's tolerated. I couldn't agree more. There's plenty of examples of the U.S. having used its power to hold sway over smaller countries. There's absolutely nothing new under the sun about that. All my article seeks to do is to give a specific example of conduct and then deconstruct that conduct and suggest what it means. Now, just coming back to the fact that it's gone viral, when you <laughs> spoke at the beginning, you weren't totally happy with the way it's gone viral or how people have received it, but did Look, I, mis I, I, I misunderstand just, that? I just think people need to um, not so much be dispassionate about issues, but to be thoughtful in expressing their opinions, whether it's pro or anti China, I just think that this sort of black and white binary type of argument is ultimately not helpful. These things are complex. Being dependent on any particular great power is not necessarily so smart. However, living up here in Darwin where the superpowers are viscerally present... Do you, you see know, it every day, I imagine? <laughs> you feel you it. You see it every day. We've got to be more savvy and understand more clearly what's going on. And that's uh, John Garrick. He's at uh, Charles Darwin University. And uh, as I said earlier, published extensively on the socialist rule of law in China. So and many contacts, both in China and friends in China and Hong Kong. It's interesting, right now we're getting a lot of anti-China rhetoric, particularly coming from the backbenches, and I can't help thinking that, you know, we've had two um, hawks of Mike Pompeo, 
John Bolton visiting from the U.S., and it almost seems like the backbenchers are parroting the kinds of things those people would believe or would have said. And uh, just yesterday, um, Penny Wong issued a statement saying, you know, Scott Morrison needs to show some leadership to lead a calm and mature discussion on China, shouldn't be led by backbenchers. I'm just quoting now, shouldn't mm. be led by backbenchers. And the fact that backbenchers are feeling the need to lead is, I think, says Penny Wong, a demonstration of the failure of the government to do so. And she was citing Hastie's comments. And generally, the intellectual failure of these kinds of discussions. I mean, my sense is there's a revving up of uh, anti-China. I mean, and no one is an apologist here for China. I mean, we're, no one's saying that this is okay, but it sounds to me like there's a, a revving, like China's being looked at, it almost feels racist around their policies when Britain, the U.S., lo- Russia, you know, lots of I countries. I completely agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. I just think for us in the public and the kind of media that's coming through, you know, co- this build-up, of rhetoric. Mm. Uh, it's just, I find it a bit frightening. I don't know, what do you think? Well, yeah, funny? you know, things like, oh, we've got a, you know, all this Chinese money in Australia's democracy. Obviously, you know, Sam Dastiari lost his position. And, yeah, no, that's, and that's more around the, the conversation of what um, the influence uh, China's had mm. uh, yeah, with people mm. and politicians. But, no, but just no, the, one, yeah. no one's talking about, or less. I mean, last week... We had uh, Vince Scapaturon talking about the American influence yeah. in Australia and the yeah. way America, but no one, you know, if China does it, it's horrible, America does it. Oh, well, it's, it's tolerated just, yeah. and they're seen yeah. as the superpower of the US. Australia, yeah. New Zealand, US relations, ANZUS, is that what we've yeah. got? Yeah. 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 You know, but, and then, but they, you're right, the rhetoric is, oh, the relationship with China is doing more harm than good. But the relationship with the U.S. is doing more good than harm. In well, a it, sense. It, it doesn't <laughs> receive the scrutiny. Yeah, yeah in yeah. the public media. So I think all of us in Australia need to be very alert to what's going on. The influences coming from both directions: the yeah. U.S. and China, yeah. and uh, and some. Let's see some independence <laughs> around policy, mm. and uh, you know, thinking more carefully through it. So I think it's. I, I think my sense in speaking to John Garrick was he was surprised that um, the paper had gone viral. He says, "I'm just a humble ap- academic." <laughs> yeah. Was kind of what he said. Yeah. But I think to some extent, because he talks about China and the South China Sea. It's probably fed into that broader anti-China debate that's going, discussion that's going on, and it's probably been picked up by anti-China people. I was struck by the fact that he consistently, every time we've spoken, has talked about these two great relationships that we have, and it's important to maintain them and also to understand. So, yeah, we'll see where this goes, but I think it's important to to pay attention to it. And, so and I guess the language of democracy is important. We might end up being, you know, uh, the most anti-Chinese US ally if we keep going the way that we're going. Well, do you know what I found really interesting? Listening to the first part of that conversation with John about uh, Hong Kong and the rule of law and these people, young people and older people, like, you know, there's such a um, commitment here to this democracy. And I was thinking about what's happening in Australia with the attacks by the federal police on the journalists. So, you know, this is what Hong Kong people are standing up against. Mm. And this is kind of what's going on here. And just, I think on the weekend I read it, but not carefully enough to really cite, but just something about uh, Scott Morrison attacking Get Up now. Looking at the passion of Hong Kong people for democracy, for what they want, and the courage, uh, you know, they're standing up in the face of a real threat. 
So what's happening here mm. when our freedoms are under threat, which I feel they have been whittled away? I think we have to be cautious and As careful. well, yeah. And, and I think it's worth following what's happening over there because if you don't understand it, you just think, well, they, they're just fighting against deportation law, but it's much more than that. Oh, it's, it's way so deeper. much, yeah, so much deeper. I mean, the umbrella movement, when it happened, the deportation law didn't even exist. And there they were protesting in part about uh, China imposing on the curriculum in their institutions. Yeah. And not only that, but, but other things. So it's, it's an inspiring example of people standing up against a big power for something they feel is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's remarkable. I think we have a bit of music. Yeah. Yeah, should we play we'll a bit of music? our next guest on. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Here we go. And it's Pira with Something Has Changed. World Goa Day Fiesta is on again on the 24th of August at St. Louis de Montfort Hall in Aspendale. Now in its 17th year, the World Goa Day Fiesta celebrates the rich Goan culture with live bands and a delicious buffet spread. All welcome. Tickets are $50 per adult, $25 for children between ages 5 and 10, and $45 for pensioners. Call or SMS Oscar on 0404 848 345. That's 0404-848-345. The World Goa Day Fiesta is a 3CR supporter. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday for some black and deadly sound. Appreciate community radio 855 on the AM dial. Put on the people's appeal. Black and deadly product, Robbie Fort Radic Radio. Join me at 11 every Friday for some black and deadly sound. Appreciate community radio 855 on the AM dial. Put on the people's appeal. Black and deadly product, Robbie Fort Radic Radio. You're on 855 AM 3CR. It's time now to get to our next guest. According to the IBM study, which shows data breach costs are on the rise, the cost of a data breach has risen 12%. Um, More recently, IBM um, released a report on uh, data breach. I think there's one every year. And it talks about how Australian businesses are struggling in the fight against malicious cyber attacks and human error losing around $3 million and taking up to 281 days to manage the average data breach. I thought this was um, quite interesting and quite pertinent for us to, to focus on. We know that ACU and the ANU um, around May had some phishing attacks on their uh, email accounts and staff accounts and, you know, the, 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 the data breach there went on for, for some time before it was discovered. So I thought to find out a little bit more about what the data breach costs are and I guess what the education sector can do and what we can do as a country to make sure that these cyber attacks can slow down. We're joined now on the line by the Associate Professor and Associate Dean of Computing and Security at Edith Cohen University School of Science, Dr Paul Haskell-Dallin. Good morning, Paul. Hey, very good morning to you. Thank you for joining us uh, on 3CR. Now, I guess the, the IBM research shows that Australian organisations lag, lag behind their offshore counterparts, taking 
some uh, long time. I mean, 200 days on average to identify a data breach is quite long with, um, you know, other countries like Germany taking a, a little bit shorter. Can you tell us a little bit more about why it takes so long for us in Australia to uncover those and what it essentially um, is that we can do to, to actually stop these cyber attacks? So there's been a bit of a change over the last few years. So if we go back a year ago, there wasn't a requirement to have the breaches reported back to the public and that information leaking out into the public sector. So you can't really make a direct comparison with ourselves and other countries right at the moment. So if you compare to Europe and some other countries, they've had mandatory reporting in for quite a period of time. And so their impetus, perhaps, to get the data reporting working properly and to optimise that time, to get a, a shorter time from discovering the impact to reporting it, is perhaps quite, not quite so well developed in Australia. We'll get there, but it will take a little bit of time. And why, I'm sorry, it's Judith here. Um, yeah, why is it slower? It has been slower in Australia. So part of the problem is just that it's, it's new to us. We've had issues to do with data breaches in the past. And obviously there's been some high-profile incidents of late which have got the public's attention. And one of the things that has to be borne in mind is that the, the reporting time that we, we hear about is obviously the point at which we discover this information. And in some cases, these organisations have only recently discovered the information themselves. So whilst it may well be 200 days since the, the breach occurred to them when it's been reported, it's quite possible that organisation only discovered that information relatively recently. And you mentioned the ANU data breach as a particular example. In that particular case, it was many years before the organisation knew about it. And we're talking about vastly complex systems. So this isn't a case of just noticing that someone has been playing on your laptop. This is a massive interconnected network of many computers, often distributed across geographical areas, so you can't really have that high-level view of what's going on. It becomes very difficult to know exactly what is happening on each computer, on each piece of data stored, some of which may well be 10-year-old records that you just don't use anymore. And, and, and Paul, have there been reports of Australian companies failing to notify affected um, individuals of these types of data breaches? Or is it just purely, um, as you say, you know, the fact that some records go back to 10 years that they, they only just picked it up? It, it's, as with most things, it's a combination. So certainly if you go back more than a year, and then there wasn't a requirement to notify these data breaches. So I would be quite certain that there are many companies out there who did face a data breach and did not release the information because they were under no obligation to do so, and they presumably had made a decision to withhold that information, to keep it to their chest, because of the potential negative impact on the organisation. Now that we have a legal requirement to report this, then I think we're going to see a lot more of these data breach notifications. Hopefully, there'll be a relatively small level and impacting on a relatively small number of people. But unfortunately, there will always be these major breaches that get the public's attention, some of which may well be very old breaches that are only coming to light now. And when, again, when you look at the ANU example specifically, many, many years went by before this was detected. Hmm. And this, of course, assumes you ever detect it, because if the attacker who's been working their way through your systems 
has been extremely careful, very clever in their attack and uh, hiding their tracks as they go along, it is quite possible that a data breach could never be detected. And, and I guess, you know, as cybersecurity becomes an increasingly important issue, are we finding that um, many Australian organisations are, are hamstrung by lack of qualified staff, you know, and skilled security experts to make sure that they can detect these uh, security breaches? That's definitely a, a major problem, and it's one that uh, has been around for a few years now, and unfortunately will be continuing for a long way into the future. So if you go back uh, 10, 15 years and we look at the impact of the, the dot-com bubble, we had a, a vast surge of um, demand for people with a computing skill. And mm. Really, anyone with a vague interest in computers could manage to get themselves a uh, often a very highly paid job looking after computer systems. We're now seeing that same problem with the computer security field. So there's been a lack of interest, perhaps, in that as a career, as a, a potential pathway for people going through education. And, of course, it's still a relatively new field for adults. So if you think for parents, perhaps, who are talking to their children, thinking about making their choices, looking at possible career pathways, you don't really talk about or hear about much in the cyber security field. And would that be because there's a, there's a lack of a clear career pathway? There's certainly a lack of pathway, but there's also a lack of role models. So if you think about the computing field, you've heard of Mark Zuckerberg. You've heard mm. of, you know, there's, there's names that you will recognise. People know who Bill Gates is. Or oh, the guys that have yeah. just won 10 million playing Fortnite. Absolutely. <laughs> so you'll, heard it. You'll, you'll have those occasional examples. <laughs> But you don't hear about it in the cyber security area. Yeah. Perhaps the, the best known individual is a gentleman called Kevin Mitnick. And he's not a well-known celebrity, as some people would refer to him. He's one of the most notorious hackers in the world. Um, he's hung up his hacker gloves some time ago and he's now on the uh, the touring circuit. In fact, he's coming to Australia uh, later this year. <laughs> but he's That's probably incredible. the only recognisable name. Uh, indeed, he, he's now a speaker. He commands a, a heavy speaking fee. Um, and yet he was on the most wanted list in America for many years. So, so what I've, I'm wondering here is, you know, sitting in my little flat or wherever I'm sitting as, as a citizen here in Australia, why should I be concerned about this? So, cybersecurity can affect everybody, mm. and a data breach has the potential to affect any level of individual. So, perhaps we used to think of this as being a target of the military, and if you were looking after a nuclear missile silo, then you know, Hollywood would have us believe that we were vulnerable to a 12-year-old boy sitting in his bedroom in America. It's changed dramatically, and that's very um, visual idea of somebody in a darkened room with a hood up, huddled over a keyboard, hacking away, is not the current trend. And it's now organised crime, it's now groups of cyber criminals, as well as um, foreign states who are looking to attack whole countries. So at a, at a crime level, it does impact on anyone whose data has value. And again, people don't realise that something as simple as their email address has value. But mm. once someone gets into a system that has data about an individual, they will then often move to other systems. So as a very simple example, if I were to break into a system and many... Use the MyGov one, for example. MyGov would be a great example. I was going to go with LinkedIn because it's <laughs> one that many people will recognise, but MyGov, you get it. 
you steal some data from the system, and maybe that includes your username and password. And that's the kind of information that an attacker would likely be looking for. Unfortunately, most people still follow a very bad practice of reusing their username and password. And that could be your email address. It could be a password you use on multiple websites. So once I've got that from one location, I can then use it on a second website or a third website or a fourth website. And attackers will use techniques and tools to automatically try your passwords on multiple websites with the hope of finding where you've been, the kind of services and sites you use. And they build up a profile of you as an individual. And they get to know that you're likely to be interested in particular topics. And that will direct them to other websites. Well, I mean, that's all clearly happening because if I uh, do a search, I mean, in my case, I've been hacked perhaps. <laughs> if I if I do a search uh, for, like, prices for a flight somewhere, all of a sudden what pops up on my, when I had Facebook, I don't need more, but is all the, um, you know, information about cheap flights to this place. Someone knows. Absolutely. So that's the, the search engine building a profile of you, but the attackers have got access to various levels of information and tools. They can do very similar things. And it isn't too difficult to work out that if they steal your account details from a website and that has your email address and perhaps it's a, um, a recognizable one like Gmail, they will then go to the Gmail website and they will try that that email address. They will try the password that they managed to extract. And if you've used that same one, they've now got access to your email. And of course, in your email is likely to be other accounts that you've set up because you get those email reminders that welcoming you to the uh, the website when you join. Some of which even sends you the password. So, Paul, it's Alice here. Um, so, why why would somebody want to have all this information? Like, how why is it important for that hacker to build a profile for you and understand what you're looking at and stuff like that? So, there's always the case of an attacker who is looking for you individually. So, it may well be you're the target of, of their interest, but it's far more likely that they're simply gathering information to use in further hacks, and in particular, to sell. Mm. So, there is an underground economy. So a dark market where you can buy and trade in stolen goods, just as you can in the physical world. You can find somebody to fence the goods. In the Internet, you can find places where you can sell email addresses. So if I were to obtain, for example, the MyGov database, and within there I found details of a few tens of billions of people's email addresses, I can use that information to then sell that on to third parties, people who want to send you the, the spam emails and the phishing that you often receive. Mm. And, of course, that list of email addresses isn't just a random list. It's a list of Australian citizens. And if I were to combine that with, for example, your tax return, and I'm not saying that information is easily accessible, but if I could get that information, I now have details of you as an individual, but also of your income level. And that could be very valuable to sell into the, the private sector to use for direct marketing. People will now know what you earn, where you live. And it looks like we've lost Paul Haskell-Dowland. Uh, we'll try and um, phone again, but if we don't have any luck, we'll try and speak to him another time. Great interview. That's certainly a story that we need to keep an eye on, that's for sure. So big thanks. Paul Haskell-Dowland, Associate Professor at Edith Cohen University. And I think we're just going to be back soon enough with Noah. We are. Oh, 
It's great to have that conversation about cybersecurity. And now we're moving back here to Victoria. Well, we've probably always been here because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. cybersecurity is everywhere. Uh, but um, last Thursday, a law which allows transgender people to choose the gender listed on their birth certificate without having surgery, which is another part of this, passed in Victoria's Legislative Assembly, the lower house. And the vote was 56 to 27, so that's a really strong support for the bill. Now, it has to be debated in the Legislative Council this week, and it needs to pass there before becoming law. So to discuss the proposed law and why it's needed, we're joined by Associate Professor Noah Reisman from the Australian Catholic University. He's currently leading a research project on the history of transgender Australians. So welcome to 3CR Monday Breakfast, Noah. Good morning. Thank you for the invitation. It's wonderful to have you here, and we always appreciate people getting up early. And uh, <laughs> and uh, before we discuss the proposed law, uh, can you tell us something about why you felt it was important to conduct research on the history of transgender people in Australia? Well, sure. I mean, I should first state my own position here. I'm a cisgender male, so I'm not transgender myself. Um, so when I'm speaking, I can relay some of the oral histories people have told me, but I'm, I'm not able to speak from a trans perspective. Say, thank you. That was really important. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, so just, I mean, a bit of background. My previous research has looked at the history of LGBTI people in the Australian Defense Force. And as part of that research, I interviewed about a dozen trans members, past and present. And one thing that became really clear from that project was we can't understand the experiences of trans people in a particular institution like the Defense Force without knowing the much broader context, the much broader history, the law, the medicine, the social, the media, all of this stuff, which is intertwined. And we don't really have that history recorded in Australia. So that's what brought me to, to develop this project, which is looking at Australia's transgender history since the early 20th century. And is it a better researched in other countries? Is it just a gap in Australia, or are there gaps in other countries as well? The United States is where the most work has been done. There's um, a few transgender scholars and a few cisgender scholars who've done work there. Um, Susan Stryker is, is probably the best trans historian in the world. In the United Kingdom, there's been a little bit of work done on the recent trans history, but outside of the United States and the UK, there really hasn't been much done in this space. 
I see. Okay, so um, what? So what have you? I mean, you're still in that project. I understand you're still doing that yes, work. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So are there uh, some? I've done a lot of work on Victoria, though, so far. And when the birth certificate legislation came up, I mean, one thing that, speaking from a historical perspective, this is not new. This is something that transgender people have been pushing for since the early 1980s. Mm, yes, that doesn't surprise me because I, I do remember people like Roberta Perkins and some of her work uh, in New South Wales. But, um, yeah, it's been, it, so it's been around, it's not new, but still we're, we're having to deal with the legislation. That's right. And, I mean, just to give you in brief some of that history, if, that's what, if you're okay with that. Yes. Um, so as early as 1978, the Family Law Council I, um, investigated the issue of birth certificates and, and recognition for trans people nationally. And what they found was, that in so many areas of Commonwealth law, ranging from inheritance to marriage to to anything that that involved sex, the law, when it referred to sex, came back to the birth certificate, and it noted this is something that the states, at some stage, are going to have to deal with. But it kind of kicked the can down the road. It said, "But don't really worry about this now because it's so few people." In the early 1980s, one of Victoria's first activist groups, the Victorian Transsexual Coalition. They very much were advocating for anti-discrimination laws, but they also raised other issues that affected trans people, and one of them was birth certificates. So as early as 1983, there are documents of trans people saying, we need reform to birth certificates. There were pushes through the 80s, but very much the a lot of the emphasis shifted to anti-discrimination law, um, which eventually did pass in the Victorian Parliament in the year 2000. And I think we can come back to that in a moment because I think there's an important resonance of that law with what's going on now. But the first round of birth certificate reform in Victoria was in 2004, and that law passed with both sides of Parliament supporting it, which is another key point I'll come, I can come back to. Um, and that's what set up what we have in place now, which was requiring a trans person to have undergone gender affirmation surgery and then they can apply to have their birth certificate changed. That, that seems very invasive to me uh, as a condition of having the birth certificate changed. Yeah, it's... Look, I, I mean, absolutely agree, circa 2019. Circa 2004, it was interesting because there were debates even, and divisions even within the trans community. The original proposal was not going to require surgery. The original proposal was actually going to require some sort of medical interventions, meaning hormones would have been would have been fine if someone was on hormones for 18 months. But there was actually a split within the trans community with some trans people saying, no, it should require surgery. Some saying, no, it shouldn't. The gay and lesbian community also had a bit of a backlash. And the legislation that was ultimately put forward was requiring of surgery. Now, that Rightly or wrongly, and circa 2019, I definitely would say wrongly, we need to go further. But in 2004, that brought Victoria in line with every other state. Victoria was the last state to do that. I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and Noah, I guess, you know, for the, the people like Danny O'Brien and the Liberals and the Nationals who are voting against the legislation, they sort of look at things like, um, you know, they understand that obviously transgender people go through hell, but Danny O'Brien was quoted as saying that his main concern was that someone can simply change their, their sex um, just to be moved out of a male prison into a female prison, because under this legislation that can be allowed. Is that correct or not? Well, 
my understanding is no, it's not that simple. Mm. Um, some of the labor members who spoke have talked about this, and they've talked about safeguards. Um, they've talked about stat decks, and you know, there's a, my limited understanding is there's even a, a process where the if they think someone is trying to do that, then it can be stopped. So these are furfies. Mm. These are furfies and excuses that are being thrown up, and also they're very much pointing to the extreme hypothetical example when history has shown these extreme hypotheticals they don't happen legislation like this in every other well sorry not every other state new south wales and queensland have not yet but they've done this in south australia northern territory tasmania act and these these fantasies that the opposition presents don't come to pass yeah, and I, I've noticed also in some cases this is coming from the religious right or the extreme right, in particular the Australian newspapers been uh, publishing a series of articles just as scaremongering and uh, half-truths about, you know, the problems with this legislation. Not even half-truths in many cases. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Thing, but, but I'm glad you raised the opposition because this is a key point I, I hinted at before I want to come back to. In the year 2000, when there were amendments proposed to anti-discrimination legislation, the Labour was in government then. The Liberals, the opposition, they did not oppose it. And in fact, if you go back to the Hansard from 2000, some of the most compassionate, some of the most affirming, some of the, the most powerful speeches in support of the legislation came from Liberal members. And there was at least one Liberal member who talked about the anti-discrimination law as being part of a march towards a more equal and a more inclusive society. That word inclusive, something you don't normally hear coming from people from the right. And in 2004, that first round of birth certificate reform, again, the opposition supported it. And not only did they support it, one of them even was in the parliament saying it didn't go far enough. Yes, now, I mean, how far has the, the Liberal Party fallen uh, from the small L liberals who used to, you know, balance some of these um, issues out? It's very worrying. They, well, I mean, worrying is one word, but I mean, I just wish that, that the Liberal members, I mean, they, the lower house votes already happened, but if any Liberal upper house members are listening, I'd encourage them to go back and read these hands cards or contact me. I'll send them to them. I mean, this is the value of doing historical doing. work, isn't it? That's right. The yes. party was doing 15, 20 years ago and what they were saying and, you know, reconsider your position yes. um, is what I'd say on that. For sure. And so I'm just, just can you now tell us just um, the detail or something more about this law that's uh, currently being debated, that'll be debated and discussed and voted on this week in the upper house? Uh, I think it might be next week actually. The oh, is it? House. Okay. Um, okay. Um, yep. Uh, look, I've been following, I've been following a lot of the transgender activists' um, pages, and I think first off, I can tell you a little bit about the law, but in terms of how it would affect people, you've got to talk to trans people Yes, themselves. of course. Yes. Um, the, the law will essentially bring Victoria in line with, as I said, South Australia, Tasmania, Northern Territory, what they already have, uh, and the ACT. So a person who's over 18 can apply to change their birth certificate to whatever gender marker they would like, including no gender, if they so choose. Contrary to what some of the writers are saying, this does not eliminate gender. This is a choice that people can make. Um, they can only do it uh, if they, for whatever reason, want to do it again. I, I think 12 months. It might be longer than that. Um, and essentially they apply and they can have it changed. It's as simple as that. They don't require surgery. For parents, there are 
there are rules so that people under 18 can also do this, but that does involve parental consent. Um, and I think those are those are the basics of it. Is it sort of removes this surgery requirement? Yeah. Okay. So that and uh, that. What's your sense? Do you have a sense whether it will pass in the upper house? Look, all things, assuming they continue going as they are now, we know that Labour is supporting it. We know Fiona Patton's Reason Party set has said she will support it. The one Green has said she'll support it, and the one Animal Justice Party member has said that he will support it. That is enough to get it through the upper house, barring anyone changing their mind. That said, I mean, this is a really important law, and I think Victoria should show as much support as possible. There are a lot of other independents who haven't declared their position. I would love to see them all vote yes as well. And as I said, it would be great if some liberals and nationals considered crossing the floor or or even abstaining, let's say. When you, when you mentioned those numbers in the lower house, it did seem like a whopping majority, which is great. Um, when I quickly went back through the Hansard, though, those 26, I think it was, might have been, whatever the number was, that was every liberal and national member. So none of them abstained. They all voted no. <laughs> really? <laughs> so it passed in the lower house. All of Labour voted yes. The three oh, Greens in the lower house voted mm. yes. And the two independents also voted Sorry, yes. yes. Yeah. So if people listening want to support this bill or want to encourage it, you know, that it goes through, is there anything they can do? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right to the, your upper house members. I mean, I've already done this. And look, especially, look, it's important to write to all of them. It's important to write to the labor ones to reaffirm support for this. It's important to write to the liberals and nationals and say, please change your mind. But especially the independents who haven't declared their hands. And so I'd encourage everyone, and look, if the trans people are already doing this, trans people are writing and talking about their own perspectives. People like myself who are cisgender, we should be writing in and talking about, you know, either our trans family and friends or just talking about how, as cisgender people, you know, why we support this. One thing I've said in, in my emails to all my upper house members is, this doesn't affect me. And this is a key point. If you're cisgender, if you're happy with the marker on your birth certificate, has no effect on us whatsoever. But for transgender people, this means so much to them. And there's no reason we shouldn't be supporting them. So everyone write to your upper house members. Yes. Oh, well, Noah, that's a really a good message to, to send out to our listeners. And I'm sure that lots of them will be supporting. I think most, actually, knowing 3CR, will be supporting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate it. And also the history you're doing. All the best with that research. And uh, I'm sure we'll invite you on again just to talk more about that research because it must, be so, must be so exciting. Oh, look, it really is. And look, if there are any trans people listening who are interested, I, I'm very much still doing oral history interviews because, as, as I said, those are really where we get the stories of how people's experiences have changed over time. So they're welcome to email me, um, and I'm happy to give more details about the project or set up an interview. Fantastic. Thank you again, Thank you, Noah. Noah. No worries. Thanks. And that was uh, Professor, Associate Professor Noah Reisman from the Australian Catholic University. And uh, I think it's going to be really exciting to see what comes out of his research on the history of tra- transgender Australians. Might go straight to Robert. Yeah, yeah shall we? The, uh, okay. Um, excitement machine. Yeah, that is Robert, the environmental activist from Scotland originally. And um, yeah, now living in East London. So I met him 
um, completely by chance when I was walking around Westminster just outside the Houses of Parliament. The very best kind of interviews, I think. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I came out from the tube station and he was just standing there with, um, well, I saw him from about 100 metres away, actually, with the biggest placard I've ever seen, decorated with um, single-use plastic that he has found from his local park in East London. And, yeah, he's a very passionate gentle gorgeous soul and I realized that when I was speaking to him and yeah he is passionate about the environment and his local park in East London so we're going to take a listen to Robert now we have two parts I think we'll be able to get them both in by the end of today but if not I'll play the second part next week for you but here we go my name is Robert Robert, and whereabouts are you from? East London, or Scotland originally. Yeah. I live in East London now. Are you here every day? Every single day, yeah, weather permitting. The only thing that keeps me away is heavy rain mm-hmm. uh, and strong winds because my placards, I tend to get blown about a bit, <laughs> so I've got to take safety first and so on into consideration. But other than that, every single day, I, mean, I get here about 12 o'clock in the day and I finish here about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I spend about four hours a day here and... Uh, and I have to say that I, I enjoy it when I get a conversation with somebody like you or anybody else. Anyone who wants to have a yeah, yeah, because because it makes my time go faster and it makes my effort worthwhile as well when I get a, when I get a response and encouragement. So I've been cleaning, cleaning up my local area in East London for the last two and a half, three years. And the stuff I found has horrified me and made me angry. And uh, when I see mice making nests out of plastic bags, uh, birds using plastic to line the nests, trees with plastic in the roots, and you can't separate one from the other. That made me very angry. Those weren't one of the incidents. They were repeated over and over again. When I saw a costly amount of damage that we, through our neglect, are inflicting on Mother Nature and on the animals and plants, I had to come down here and express my anger and maybe to achieve some kind of change. I've been here uh, since February, five months altogether now, and I intend to be here for a lot longer and, uh, and, uh, and maybe engineer some kind of change. Throughout, I get an excellent response by just standing here. I get many photographs, many comments, many words of encouragement uh, and appreciation. And, uh, and that's why I keep going. If those things were to stop and I would stand here without achieving any kind of reaction at all, then I know that I'd be barking up the wrong tree. But the public response is phenomenal out here, phenomenal, and the political will is pretty much the opposite. So you're outside Westminster now. Has anybody anybody come down from Westminster and and spoken to you at all, asked you any questions? Yeah, I've I've met Claire Perry, the uh, climate, climate change minister, out here on this very corner. That must have been about three and a half months ago and she's very nice very very brief she introduced herself to me and uh, and she said it's good what you're doing and then she walked off and I felt quite enchanted and inspired when she said that because those words came from a parliament uh, a parliamentarian and uh, to uh, say words as strongly as that I felt that uh, maybe something would happen I've also met uh, 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 an MP called Tim Law and I think he's from Surrey, and uh, he done a three-minute video of me regarding the uh, lack of, of uh, recyclability for, for all these things. This is one bottle here, but it's got three component parts. 
all different plastics, which means, as we see it now, it's rendered unrecyclable, and it's a big, big job to, uh, to undo all these things. You see these complications. When you look at a plastic bottle, it's not what it seems. Uh, and that's a, that's a big snag with, with recycling. Uh, rather make it easy for us, the consumer, to, to recycle uh, the, the, the empty plastic bottle. It can be very complicated. It can be three or two component parts which can be separated and put in respective containers to, 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 to allow recycling. Have you seen a lot of change in London in the last couple of years? More, more attention on the, on the climate and the environment? Well, I've, seen, uh, I've been through all the, all the um, uh, demonstrations, whatever it might be, Extinction Rebellion or mm -hmm. the student one. Uh, Fridays for Future come over there on a Friday. And uh, the, biggest, the biggest thing that struck me when Extinction Rebellion were here in April for 10 days was that uh, despite maybe the uh, civil disobedience, disobedience that uh, they, they, they uh, uh, pursued, throughout the time here, it achieved one thing, oddly enough, and that was democracy. Because they got to see the ministers responsible. And for me, that was the most important thing of all. And the other thing it's achieved is, is comprehensive awareness of the problems facing us. Nobody can deny knowledge now and say they don't know. Because it's been highlighted, it's continuous in the news, it's on the news even as... Uh, as a small footnote sometimes, and, uh, which, is, which for me makes the biggest difference. It used to be insignificant a couple of years ago, never got mentioned. But nowadays, it might be a small footnote, but nevertheless it's justified, as I mentioned, on the national news or in, on the radio stations and so on. And for me, though, those are the differences that have become uh, pronounced and paramount for all of us. And I think ultimately, given uh, the knowledge that we all have, we have to harness that knowledge and, and get to work and, uh, and start cleaning. That's the thing we've got to do. I know that what can be achieved because in my time, my two and a half, three years I spent locally, I've seen Mother Nature surge back when it's got a clean environment and it's all the plastic is removed. I can see how the plants bounce back, how deep the colour is, the green is, how vibrant, how dense it's become. And I can see the animals come back with the new burrows in the ground and I can see the birds and I can hear the birds come back as well by the, by the uh, tweeting and so on in the branches because they can, food, they can get food from the ground to feed the young. When I see things like that, I rejoice in, um, in my achievement locally and I know that if it was spread worldwide, nature would thrive and the plant would thrive and everything would be so much different and lovely. We can all do it. We can all do it. And so that was Robert. So beautiful. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and um, so that was him speaking mostly about, I mean, everything in London, really, and his local community and helping in those wor last words there about his local park and actually yes. what he's seen through the last uh, couple of years since he's been cleaning up his local park and the nature that has actually come back and also touching on... Um, Extinction, Extinction Rebellion. Yes. Mm -hmm. And being a part of that in London as well. Yeah. That's just a small, per one person doing a small thing. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and he's committed. He's out there um, every day. He has his Sundays off, as he said in there. He mm -hmm. takes a Sunday off 
and yeah and the only thing that stops him is high winds because he gets blown about a bit oh, yes he would and he <laughs> would with that placard it's absolutely huge, huge. Yeah. but um we have a second part now so i'll play that and we can just finish off with a bit more of robert the wording of my placard really stemmed from my anger in my local park and uh, the first the one at the top on the front says bash plastic trash which is self-explanatory on the back at the top it says they banned asbestos and those are two things I used to say to myself you know why don't they ban this plastic and, and then I used to think well they banned asbestos and the reason they banned asbestos was because when it was uh, first used in, 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 in buildings and so on uh, it was thought of as a wonder material because it was uh, fireproof was insulating and so on and we thought how wonderful it was until we realised that dust and so on can cause serious damage to people's lungs and in, in, in other ways and so on. And when it came to uh, banning the stuff, despite the best efforts by the health and safety executive, and I met a guy out here maybe two, or two weeks into my campaign, and he'd been with the health and safety executive for 20 years, and he said when it came to banning asbestos, the people in there, in the House of Parliament, he said they didn't want to do it. He said they dragged their feet over and over again, and ultimately they were compelled into doing it. And the similar, similarity I make with asbestos and plastic is that we all know now that we're breathing plastic dust. There's plastic dust in the atmosphere, and we're consuming it through drink, through water, and, fo- and, and food, and so on. And uh, in, this, in, in the last couple of months, it's been acknowledged that uh, plastic that we inhale does damage to some people's lungs but we don't know yet fully the extent of it in the long term what it might what it might what it might cause to, to, to human beings we also know that uh, uh, the plastic toxins in the oceans damage the fish brains and also the internal organs and that's established but we don't know quite yet how, how much it will affect the humans it might not Hopefully it might not, but on the other hand it might, and we don't know, we don't know. So why do you think they banned asbestos as soon as they found out it was damaging people? Why do you think they banned that, but plastic they're dragging their feet again? Well, it took them some time to ban uh, asbestos, and one of the difficulties the, the parliamentarians have is that if they ban something, then there's likely to bring compensation claims, like, like has been asbestos and so on and they can be quite substantial, and that's one of the problems that uh, if it's acknowledged as a dangerous substance, then there can be counterclaims as time goes on because of the damage to human, human health and human beings, and that's one of the worries they have, might have in there, is about bringing down a blanket ban of plastic. But the other, the other snag is the fishing nets, and that, that, that can be huge problems because they're vast, the ropes are quite thick and so on, and, uh, and the significant amount in the oceans. And uh, that's, that's long-term plastic, or long-term use plastic, which again is abused, just dumped in the ocean when the nets are beyond repair. You know, so we have, we have got to be very comprehensive in our approach to, to everything, and we must start. We must start, really, now. And that was Robert. And thank you to all of our guests today. And it's Women on the Line next, and we'll see you next week. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, 
You can check them out at nibs.org.au and if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 8377. Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.